invite you to turn to Mark 15. We'll cover the first five verses. This will be the first part, really, of one larger pericope, which will end at 15, but there's just simply no way that I can go through 15 verses at this point in the narrative in one sermon. So this will be Jesus before Pilate, part one. And that is an interesting thing to observe about narrative is that sometimes the narrative will go quite speedily. Sometimes people will only get a, a, a part of a verse and so-and-so lived and they had sons and daughters and they died. And that's all we know. And then for certain people, scripture, uh, uh, time slows down and all four gospels slow down to a crawl when they reach the Passion Week of our Lord. That means this is important stuff. It's important not to hydroplane over this, but to get some depth of what's going on. So let me remind you that Jesus has been arrested. He has been tried. He's had, he had three uh, little trials uh, before the chief priests and the Sanhedrin. He has been declared guilty of blasphemy for being the Son of God. Remember that. He's been beaten and mocked. And by this point, Matthew tells us that Judas has already hung himself. His disciples have deserted him. Everything is happening as the scripture said it would happen. And don't, don't let it escape your notice that everything has happened exactly as Jesus has said it would happen. Not only is Isaiah 53 being fulfilled before our very eyes, but the things that Jesus has been saying over and over and over again for the last several chapters, they are happening right now. So there's four headings that we can divide our text by. Verse 1, Jesus is delivered to Gentile authority. Jesus is delivered to Gentile authority. Verse 2, he will be examined by Gentile authority. Verse 3, he is accused by Jewish authority. And then verses 4 and 5, Jesus confounds Gentile authority. Let's read what Mark writes for us. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, it is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate, like so many others, was amazed. Let's look at Jesus being delivered to Gentile authority, verse 1. Delivered to Gentile authority. Mark, Mark tells us it is <laughs> early in the morning. And the chief priests with the elders and the scribes and the whole council... <laughs> Immediately held a consultation. Now that right there, that is the third religious trial of Jesus. The first is found only in John 18. That was a little private interrogation off the books, off the record, between Jesus and Annas, the former high priest, Caiaphas's father-in-law. The second, was, uh, which we read about uh, at the end of Mark 14, was before Caiaphas and the whole council. That was the first and the second Jewish religious trial. This consultation right here, which just kind of happens on the fly, Mark doesn't really tell us anything about it, this is the third. Notice that Mark does tell us that it is now early in the morning, and Luke's parallel also tells us that it was day. So however far the sun is up, the sun, the sun is up. It is now daytime. And it is as early as possible for court to legally convene. 
And this consultation is immediately held. Again, Mark doesn't tell us the details of the trial. He gives us the Reader's Digest version. But he doesn't really need to. We're not really missing anything. We're not missing out on anything because he's already demonstrated how the Jewish leaders have already determined the verdict before they even had a charge to charge him with. Those first trials, they were unofficial. They were off the record. But this trial, the sole purpose of this trial is so that there is some exterior coding of formality and legality that they can charge, they can officially charge Jesus with with blasphemy now that it's daytime and now that they have actually decided what they're going to charge him with. Now they can legitimately charge him. And notice that Mark says, after the consultation, they bind him, which tells us what did they do? And we know he was bound before the consultation. What, what can we deduce from that, from, from this consultation? He was, he was unbound. So for the duration of this trial, he has the semblance. He is appearing as if he is a yet uncondemned man. He, he has the appearance of still being uh, un, unfound to be guilty. He is still innocent. But then they bind him again. And as Mark tells us, they led him away. And here's this word that's popped up so many times. Handed over. Delivered. It's the same word for betray. Just as Jesus said it would happen. Remember all the way back in beginning in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11? We're going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests. And then I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. 1033, handed over, delivered over to the Gentiles. What's happening right now? He's being handed over to Gentiles. Now, why would they do that? They wouldn't do it to to fulfill Jesus' words, I can guarantee that. The truth is the Jews didn't have legal authority of capital punishment as subjects of Rome. Rome prevented them or prohibited them from the power of the sword. That was their way of reminding their subjects who has the power, who's in charge. Someone may recall that the Jews stoned Stephen in in Acts 8 and they tried to stone Paul on a number of occasions. And they even tried to stone Jesus uh, during the gospel accounts. But those were not official actions of the Jewish body. Those were mob riots. Those were things that the Jews could have, uh, uh, in case with with, uh, Stephen, and had it happened to Jesus, they would have told the Romans, you know, people got out of of control. We, We didn't intend for that to happen. They intend for Jesus to be killed here. Jesus must be condemned before Pilate, who does have the power of capital punishment, and the Jews are desperate to get Jesus out of their hands. They cannot get caught by the people having abducted the king. That is a smoking gun that they do not want to have. So it is still... Early in the morning, it is officially the next day, and Jesus is delivered to Gentile authority. Notice now in verse 2 that he is examined by the Gentile authority that he is delivered to. He is examined by Gentile authority. The religious trial is now officially over. The, The civil trial now begins. And this, just like the religious trial, this is going to have three parts. And Mark provides the first and the third. They are both before Pilate. He provides them as two halves of a sandwich put together. Luke alone records in chapter Luke 22, records him being ferried off to Herod. Then he will return to Jesus. So three little trials before the Jews, three, chi- three trials before the Gentiles. And verses 1 through 5 is the first 6 to 15 is the, is the third. This is the first trial as he's standing before Pilate. Mark tells us in verse 2, Pilate did what? 
He questioned him. Pilate questioned him, and that was something that was his prerogative to do. Pilate is the the Roman governor of Judea. He is the prefect or the governor that Rome has put in place. And Rome has entrusted to him the power of the sword so that he may serve Caesar. It is Pilate's job to bring swift retribution to, to anybody who defies or challenges or otherwise causes problem for Caesar. Now, Pilate normally did not live in Jerusalem. He normally resided in Caesarea Maritima. Where do you think that is? The coast. It's on the Mediterranean coast. But like Herod Antipas, who lived up uh, around the Sea of Galilee uh, in Tiberias, Pilate would come to Jerusalem during these three annual feasts. You have Pentecost, that was, uh, Passover, that's the big one. You have Pentecost, and then you have the, the, the Feast of Booths. They would, uh, both Pilate and Herod would come to these three annual feasts because there was a tendency toward, uh, on these feasts for the nationalistic zeal, for the pro-Jewish spirit to be roused up. And if there was going to be a riot, if there was going to be a problem, it would probably happen on these occasions. And so it was very common. In in fact, it was appropriate and expected for Pilate and Herod to uh, stay in Jerusalem during these times so that if and when something happened, they are right there, Jimmy, on the spot. They can respond to problems swiftly. Now, the traditional site of this trial, as Jesus is standing before Pilate, is uh, what's called the the porch of the Fortress Antonia. Fortress Antonia. That is a, a, a barracks that overlooked the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. And if you've seen a, a model or a rendition or a, maybe a, a, a computer rendition of the Temple Mount, you would see a little Roman, Greek, little uh, structure thingy uh, on the corner of the temple. That's the Fortress Antonia. That's where the troops were garrisoned. But... Scholars suggest that Pilate didn't live there, and that makes sense because authority figures normally don't live among the troops. And so he is more likely requisitioned Herod's palace in the southwest part of the city. And we see the same thing. Annas and Caiaphas shared a residence. Uh, Herod and Pilate probably are sharing a residence. If you look down in verse 16, Mark even uses the word pra- the, the palace or the praetorium. That's the word for uh, a dwelling place, a residence, not a barracks. So we are probably at Herod's and Pilate's home. And it would make sense, too, if, he, if we recount that he's going to be shuffled off to, to Herod and then come back to Pilate within a r- relatively short amount of time because he has to be on a cross by what time? He has to be on the cross at 9 o'clock. Mark tells us that. Now, the Jews didn't like Pilate, and that's fine because he didn't like them either. There's no shortage of conflict and strife between the two parties, and next week I hope to, to uh, get into some of that. It's not really interesting, but it, it kind of explains the, the, uh, what's going on as the Jews and Pilate are playing this game back and forth with each other. But what's important to know is that Pilate was not a man of the people. He was not a man of the people. He was uh, Philo and Josephus, Jewish historians uh, that came after, um, after this time. They both account him as being a cruel and a, an oppressive and an unjust governor. He was a man of blood and a man of bribery. This is not somebody that you want in charge of your hearing. And so nobody especially the Sanhedrin. Nobody is expecting Pilate to give Jesus a fair trial. Nobody is expecting Pilate to be interested in in deriding the truth or arriving at a truthful conclusion. Now, for this, because Mark skips over, I want to ask you to turn to John 18. John 18. And while you're flipping, also put your finger in 1 Peter 2. But John 18. John includes 
some of the details that the other gospel writers omit. And we know that John was known to the family of the high priest, so he's a reliable source for what's going on behind enemy lines. Look at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but may eat the Passover. Does that not smack in the face of religious hypocrisy? I mean, don't, don't, don't let the irony escape you. What Jesus said when he condemned them scathingly in Matthew 23, he said, you, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You strain out a gnat and you turn around and swallow a camel. He called them whitewashed sepulchers who appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of rotten, decaying, uh, he says all uncleanness. Just think of the nastiest corpse that's being that's decaying. And that's what they were. They will lie and conspire to kill Jesus. <laughs> they will play blood money, pay blood money to Judas. They will pervert justice. But hey, they didn't go into a Gentile's home. You know why they didn't go into a Gentile's home? Because Gentiles cooked and ate leaven. And the Jews were not to have leaven on Passover. So they are conspiring to kill an innocent man. But hey, they didn't, eat, they didn't touch the leaven. How pious are they? That is textbook definition of straining a gnat and swallowing a camel. In verse 29, we see Pilate's opening question. Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And you look at their response in verse 30. If, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. What kind of, what kind of answer is that? And this is highly suggestive that they weren't even expecting Pilate to ask for charges. They probably were not expecting Pilate to follow any kind of protocol. I mean, imagine being hauled into the court, and when the judge says, what's the charge against this man? The officer says, well, do you, do you see my badge? I wouldn't, have arrested, I wouldn't have arrested Ben if he wasn't a troublemaker. Hurry up and throw him in the slammer. Sorry, Ben. You're the first person I looked at. Now, this also suggests that Pilate had a prearranged agreement with them because who did Judas bring to Jesus the previous night? Along with the temple guard, who else? Nope. The Roman cohort. The, all military matters was one-third of Pilate's job. He was in charge of taxes, he was in charge of the military, and he was in charge of, of uh, 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 capital cases. So Judas could, the Jews could not get four to six hundred Roman soldiers without Pilate's approval. So there's a very good likelihood that, that this was all prearranged, this was all supposed to be under the table, Pilate was just supposed to go through the motions, and, and they're not expecting him to actually go, whoa, 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 guys, fellas, what are you charging him with? I don't think they're expecting that in the lightest. And then they, the, the best they can come up is with, you know, with deer, uh, like a cow's eyes and the headlights of an oncoming train. Uh, we wouldn't have asked you to kill him if he wasn't a bad man. We see in verse 31, Pilate realizes this is, a, this is an in-house matter between Jesus and the Sanhedrin. He says, he says, take him yourselves. Judge him according to your law. And here, the way, what the Jews respond to him, this, this makes their, uh, their intention. This is why they need Pilate to do his job. We are not permitted to put any one to death. They cannot, we cannot kill 
Jesus. The best we can do, the most we can do is discipline him. We can slap his wrists. We want you to slit his wrists. We want you to end him. And verse 32 reminds us that all of this is are, are details that Jesus has predicted again and again and again and again. John says, speaking of him being handed over to Pilate to be put to death, this was to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Where, where you, where, where, where's John getting that? What did, John, what did Jesus say earlier? The Son of Man will be what? After he's handed over. The Son of Man will be what? what? Where'd the cross go? Yeah. Son of Man will be lifted up. How did Romans execute capital punishment? Crucifixion. How did Jews execute? How did Jews inflict capital punishment? Stoning. If the Jews had killed Jesus, they would have stoned him. They would have pushed him off a, off a cliff. Jesus said, Son of Man will be lifted up, just as the bronze serpent in the wilderness, and anyone who looks at him will be saved, John 3. And all this is happening exactly as Jesus said it would happen. Verse Now, in verse 33, therefore, Pilate goes into the praetorium and he summons Jesus and he says, are you the king of the Jews? And at first glance, this may, we may think that this is verse 2 when Mark records Pilate asking him, are you the king of the Jews? I don't think that's yet. I think what we're reading here in verse 33 is, I don't think it's here yet. Again, Mark is giving us a reader's digest version. I think what what Mark 15.2 is, uh, that question is found down in verse 37. So the first time Pilate asks this question, he is not asking, when, when he asks, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? He is not asking as a Jew with Jewish premonitions about who the king of the Jews is and what his rights and entitlements and prerogatives are. He's not thinking uh, or asking what the scriptures say about him. And we've looked over some of these passages lately. Daniel 7, uh, uh, him, uh, to him was given dominion, right? We looked at Isaiah 9, 7 last week. The government will be on his shoulders. Keep, keep those verses and the others like them in your mind because they're going to be important in a minute. But Pilate is not asking, are you the long-awaited king? Are you the king that God has promised to raise up from the, from the trunk of Jesse, from the line of David? Are you that promised king? What Pilate is asking, as a, not as a Jew, as a Roman, Pilate is asking, are you a rival king to Caesar? He's not asking, are you the king of promise? He's asking, are you someone who's trying to compete with caesar do you are you a king with plans to overthrow Rom, roman occupancy of judea are you a king with soldiers who do whatever you who do whatever you say to them are you competition are you a threat are you a king that i need to be worried about are you a king that i need to deal with that's what he's asking now notice at verse 34 jesus Jesus now turns the table like the like the the private eye or the investigator who shines the light on the guy he's interrogating and then the the the, the interrogated turns the light right back on him. Pilate uh, Jesus asks Pilate the questions a question. He says, "Are you asking on your on your own initiative or what is it? Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you?" about me and what this means is Pilate, are are you asking because you actually want to know the truth are you genuinely interested in the truth or have you just been spoon-fed questions to ask me and you're just going through the motions just following protocol just doing what you're told or what you've been paid or bribed to do now this would this would catch any man any governor by surprise no 
No prisoner does this. No, no prisoner retorts, responds, re, re, rebuttals with questions of his own. No prisoner interrogates his captor, his judge. And he says, I'm not a Jew. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not one of your people. I'm, I, I can't be bothered by your petty Jewish squabbles and your little messiahs and, and fulfillments of your, of your little scriptures. Your own, your own rulers, your own authorities, your own chief priests, they, they handed you over to me. So you obviously did something. What did you do? What have you done? And Jesus answers his question in verse 36. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Meaning, it's not a kingdom like any you've seen or like any you would ever visit or find in this world. It wasn't founded by the ambition or the power of men. It doesn't operate the way kingdoms that you've visited operate. And if you want an example, here's an example. Worldly kingdoms, all the kingdoms of the world, even your own Roman Empire, its armies fight to protect their king and to prevent his capture. And if my kingdom were like your kingdom, if my kingdom was something you could relate to, if my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I wouldn't be here being forced to answer your questions. But as it is, and this is the point for Pilate, this is Pilate's takeaway, my kingdom is not of this realm. And now, that is incredibly remarkable because it does two things. It answers both the surface question that Pilate has posed, but it also answers the unspoken deeper question. What's the deeper question? What is Pilate really concerned about when he asks, are you a king? That's right. Are you, are you a threat to Rome? And Jesus answers, the, 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 the takeaway is that Jesus and his followers and his kingdom do not pose a threat to Rome. Otherwise, they would, his servants and, and the, the forces of his kingdom, they would be here now. They would be busting down the door. They'd be fighting with sword and shield and bow and arrow because they would have, uh, it would be imperative for them to save their king. That's the, that's the deeper question. You don't, you nor Caesar need to be concerned with me. I'm not here to take your power from you. That's the deeper question. The surface question, are you a king? Now, put on your deduction hats. He says he has a kingdom and he has servants. So, ergo, is Jesus a king? Yes. Now, in verse 37, when when Pilate says, so you are a king, this is Mark 15 too. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate is, is expecting a positive answer. Are you the king of the Jews? And we know that this is that question because in verse 37, Jesus says, you correctly say that I am. That correlates to Mark, the end of Mark 15 too. It is as you say. You see how I tie that together? It is as you say. And what that means is, yes, I am a king. It is as you say, but it is not as you think. And he goes on to say, for this I have been born, we're still in John, for this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And at, at this point, in his explanation, in his defense, he's starting to bore Pilate. Pilate doesn't care about the truth. Truth? Bottom line, all that I'm concerned about with this investigation is, is are you a threat to Rome? Truth? Who cares about the truth? Truth is whatever works. Truth is relative. Everybody's truth is different from everybody else's truth. And Jesus, you're just one more talking head claiming to have some new angle, claiming to have some market on the truth. What is truth? Being being born to testify to the truth? Your followers are those who hear the truth? What's going through what's going through Pilate's mind is that the moment 
he puts this man away or the Jews stone him or, or as soon as he dies, as every man inevitably does, all of this philosophical hogwash about his truth and his kingdom and his servants who could or could not perhaps come to rescue him, all those are going to get swept away in the course of history like tears in the rain. Pilate doesn't care about truth. He's a skeptic. And that skepticism is what prompts that that rhetorical pithy question. Verse 38, what's truth? Now, do you think he's expecting an answer? No, because look look at verse 38. Uh, When he said this, when when he posed that question, it's a statement more than a question, when he said this, he went out again. So he's not even hanging around for Jesus to answer. He's not concerned. He doesn't care what the truth is. But notice this. I don't, don't, don't miss this. He, he goes out and he, what does he tell the Jews? I find no guilt in him. That will be said three times. Twice by Pilate, once by Herod. Almost as if it's affirming the fact that Jesus is innocent. He's an innocent man being charged and sentenced and condemned. This is just like the testimony of the the false testimony being uh, given in the Jewish trial and not agreeing with each other. Charges the charges don't stick. Now notice the the accusations that start flowing from the from the Jewish authority. Verse three the chief priests began to accuse him harshly. And here's our favorite imperfect tense. They were accusing over and over and over like, like, a, like a piano player or keyboard player at a Christmas party. They're just, they play one song after another after another. They never stop. And even though you put a little tray of food on the keyboard and you turn away and you don't hear the piano player stop playing, but somehow he's eating the food, it's amazing. The accusations start flowing and they don't stop. And these are, what, what, what does Mark say about these accusations? What, 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 what adjective does he, does he reach into his dictionary or a thesaurus and pull out? They're harsh. They're bitter. They're venomous accusations. And you could, you, you must close your eyes and, and picture the, the furrowed brows and the red faces that are full of anger. And, he, and you need to feel, you need to imagine the, the vitriolic, vitriolic spittle that is just sputtering off their lips as they, and you know that Jewish words have a lot of in it, so it, the spittle is flying. As they are accusing Jesus, they, they, they have to, they must convince Pilate to to find guilt in Jesus. He he's already said I find no guilt in him. They need to convince him to do otherwise, to find guilt where he has found no guilt. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what the charges are. Again, Mark gives us the reader's digest version. Luke does. Luke 23:2 says this. And you don't need to turn there. I'll read it. They say, "We found this man misleading our nation." That's one charge. And forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, that's the second. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, were any of those charges, uh, charges that they brought up in the Jewish trial? Yay, nay? No. Why don't they just say he's the son of God and that's blasphemy to us? Why don't they say that? Could Pilate care any less? They need him dead, remember? So they say, we, we found him misleading our nation. We found him forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. And we found him saying he is himself Christ, a king. These are all designed to do two things. They are designed to paint Jesus as an anti-Roman, pro-Israel revolutionary and they are designed, they are specifically designed, they are insidiously designed to hit Pilate right on his hot button.
button. These are issues that he cannot afford to turn a deaf ear to or a blind eye to. He, he, he has to respond to these. And th- this is why uh, the Jews and Pilate are starting to go at each other, which we'll look at more next week. Now, the first one, he's misleading the nation. This is, this is painting him, labeling him as a rebel. He's a revolutionary. Remember, Jesus even said to the cohort, why are you coming out here as if I'm some uh, insurrectionist, as if I'm a terrorist? Well, this is what they're labeling him here. He's a terrorist. He's, he's a rebel, an anarchist. He's somebody who stirs the pot, the social pot in all the wrong ways. And it's not content for him to do it. He has to instigate others. He has to influence others to join him in that rebellion. So he's, he's, they're telling Pilate, if you don't deal with him, you will have a bigger problem on your hands as more and more people are are following him. And some of the ways that, that Jesus has rubbed the Jews the wrong way, the, the leaders, remember that they have, uh, uh, Jesus has challenged them. Uh, he has allegedly broken the Sabbath. He has challenged their uh, the traditions of the elders, Mark 7 and Mark 10. He uh, disrupted the the temple worship. We saw that in Mark 11. And there were false accusations that he had claimed, uh, he had threatened to destroy the temple. We saw that in Mark 14. But again, those are false threats. Maybe they they might have included that because uh, the Herod's temple was Roman as much as it was Jewish. But recall that Jesus, Jesus is now at the height of his popularity. Not with the backwater Gentiles. Who is Jesus immensely popular with now? Opposite of the Gentiles, or uh, opposite of the Galilean Jews, Judean Jews. He is popular with the people of the capital city. They have hailed him as their king. And I'm sure that the triumphal entry is not something that entirely escaped Pilate's notice. So Pilate knows something of Jesus. He, he knows, he knows that Jesus is a big deal with the people. And this is the Jews way, this is the Sanhedrin's way of saying, of agreeing or affirming, yes, he has a big, he's a big deal with the people. And if you don't put a stop to him, he's going to make a big deal for you in a way that you don't like. Second one. And we can deal with this one much quicker. He's, he's forbidding his people to pay taxes. Now, you be good Bereans. I know you have your Berean hat under the chair. Put on your Berean hat. What, do, what have we read that can, that can uh, re- refute this? That's right, Mark twelve seventeen. even Mark's own gospel. Jesus, they came to him and they said, should we pay the poll tax? Je- Jesus says, Whose image is on it? Oh, Caesar's. Well, if it's Caesar's, give it to Caesar's. Give whatever is Caesar's back to Caesar and give to God what is God. So did Jesus at all forbid paying taxes? No. Now, the third one, he says he is himself Christ a king. Jewish thinking, there's a feature in Hebrew poetry called parallelism. And you will see an idea repeated, and usually it builds in its strength. It, it builds in its emphasis, and usually the, the last line is, is designed to, to make the emotional impact or the, or the blow, right? And so this third and last one, I think, is what is intended to, uh, to, to put the final nail in the coffin of this accusation. This is something Pilate cannot ignore. And now... Pilate already knows Jesus has been accused of being a king. But again, I don't, up until this point, I don't think he had any clue of, of what the Jews expected him to be of a king. I don't think he understood the messianic expectations of the Jews. You know, like Daniel 7.14, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, that's including you Romans, that's including you Pilate, that's including Caesar, that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. Or Isaiah 9, 6, the government will, the Israel government will rest on his shoulders. In verse 7, there will be no 
end to the increase of his government. And I think this is something Pilate could easily confirm by just simply going out and asking anybody or sending one of his adjutants to go and check with the people. Is, is, this, what the Jews, <laughs> is this what the Jews are expecting of this guy? I think, I think this claim, this charge could be easily corroborated. And if it's true, if the, if the Jewish anticipation of this man, of Jesus, is that he is the Messiah who's going to kick the Romans out and who has the audacity to make Caesar serve him, if word of that got back to Caesar, do you think that would cause problems for Pilate? Yeah. So Pilate can't afford to turn a deaf ear to a charge like this. He's not just any king. Our scriptures say he is the king of kings. Our scripture says that he is the highest authority on earth among all the nations. Caesar's not going to appreciate you letting him go, go about and build the adoration of the peoples. Sick how they, they even use their own scriptures against Jesus. Let's look at the last two verses. Jesus confounds Gentile authority. The Jews designed their charges to hit Pilate on the hot button. And verse 4 tells us that Pilate took the bait. He's already questioned Jesus. What did he already say? I find no guilt in him. And yet, verse 4 Pilate questioned him again. We're back to the interrogation. And he says, do you not answer? Which implies he's been expecting Jesus to say something, but Jesus is silent. He says, see how many charges they bring against you. And you don't say anything. How different Jesus is from every other man who stood before Pilate. Everyone who has stood before Pilate says something. They do something in their own defense. They, they, they put some effort. They make some appeal to the one who holds their life in his hands. But there stands Jesus. He is silent. He is somber. He is steeled. He is serene. He is steadfast. And this completely confounds this completely baffles Pilate. And you could you could you could feel his frustration as he's he realizes there is something, there is obviously something at play and he can't grasp what it is. You ever have occasions like that? You know there's something going on. There's something going on over your pay grade or over your head and you want to you want to know what's going on but you can't figure it out. Speak, Jesus. Speak up. Say something. I, I said, I've already said I found no guilt in you, but then they go and say these things that I just can't ignore. Things that your people believe to be true of you, and I, I can't just dismiss that. I can't just swipe that under the carpet. And I'm actually giving you a chance here. I'm actually trying to help you. Say something. Give me something. Give me anything. Say something. Say something to save yourself. But like a sheep before its shears, he did not open his mouth. That's what verse 4 implies. And that's what verse 5 makes emphatically clear. Pilate was obviously expecting something from Jesus, anything from Jesus. That's what everyone else has done in, when they were in Jesus' position. A defense that was made, an, ex, an explanation of, of who he is and what exactly he's taught, a rebuttal of the charges. Jesus could easily do that. Calling witnesses to vouch for him. There were thousands of people who would have come to bat for Jesus. The expectation was for Jesus to do something, but as Mark says in verse 5, but Jesus made no 
further answer. You could hear a pin drop. You could hear an angel feather drop if angels have feathers. This was a deafening silence. And as the case with so many others, Pilate was amazed. What takeaways do we have from this? There are two. Well, there are more than two, but I only have time for two. One is that the word of God does not fail. I want you with all my heart and soul to see the sureness, the infallibility of the word of God from these texts. Everything is happening precisely as the word of God said it would. If you, I'm half tempted to, to print out Isaiah 53 and just tape it to here. Every, how many passages have we gone through in the last month or two? Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53. It's happening right here. 700 years before the events took place. Written 700 years before the events took place. And everything is happening precisely as Jesus said it would. Not only is the word of God infallible, the word of Jesus is infallible because guess what? Jesus is God. He's been rejected by the Jewish leaders. He's been apprehended, treated with contempt. He's been handed over to the Gentiles precisely as he said it would. There is not one rogue word or letter in the words of Jesus. Now, that's the the truth statement. What's the application? Beloved, stand firm in the word of Jesus. Believe the word of Jesus. Have an unmovable confidence that God and Jesus know what what they're talking about when they recount the past, when they say this is how the foundations of the world was made, When when they foretell the future, this is how the world is going to end. When they describe man, we, during Sunday school we talked earlier about some truths about how man is enslaved. And these are truths that, that people, that, that atheists and, and unbelievers have a hard time believing. And it amazes me when Christians who are in the church have a hard time believing the same things. Beloved, believe the word of God. It is sure and it does not fail. And there are many things that man finds offensive and that man alleged, that unbelievers allege or, or propose these, these things need to be updated. These things need to be changed. I just saw recently this week on Facebook that uh, China, the Chinese government plans in the next five years to revise and update the Bible and the Quran. And no, I'm not saying those are the same things. But they're, going, they're planning to revise the Bible and the Quran to make them pro-socialist. That they, are going to, they say they're going to change anything that, quote, does not conform to the progress of the times. And so I would plead with you to have a vibrant, renewed, abiding belief in the scriptures. To believe that they are infallible. That means that they, they cannot fail. And so when people, are, when, 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 when people tell you or you're tempted to think, you read what the Scripture says, you hear what the Scripture says, and you go, well, that's not how it works. If it's in the Scripture, it is how it works. The Bible's infallible. It is sure. It does not fail. Believe in the inerrancy of the Scripture. It does not have error. The Word of God does not fail. That's one takeaway. The second is that Jesus is our example to follow in suffering. Do do you see again and again and again the virtue of humility and faithfulness and perseverance in the Lord Jesus Christ? We've seen that again and again and again. This text tells us that, shows us the godly quality of suffering of humility and faithfulness and perseverance. First Peter two 
First Peter 2.19 says this. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? In other words, you do the crime. What virtue do you have if you agree to, if you consent to do the time? But if when you do what is right, if, if you, if when you do well and you suffer for it, if you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Beloved, do you see the Lord Jesus Christ doing that very thing? He has done well. He has done rightly. And he is suffering for it. And he is not suffering. He's not complaining. He's not getting bitter. He's not reviling. He is enduring it with patience. And he's, Peter goes on to say, Verse 21, Christ suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. And so I would urge you, you see what Jesus is doing. You see what Jesus sounds like. Picture, think back to when you were a kid and, and, and mom or dad would walk out in the snow and you would see their footsteps and you would try to leap and land in the footsteps and try to imitate, try to mimic mom and dad. Do that with the Lord Jesus Christ. See, see the pattern he set for us and strive to match him step for step. Peter now quotes Isaiah 53, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Now, that's what not to do. Here's what's to do. Kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. Beloved, there's the, there's the pattern. There's the, there's the so what. There's the takeaway. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for... Thank you for doing what we could not. Thank you for being righteous when we, when we were not. Thank you for bearing our sin when we couldn't bear it ourselves. Thank you for showing us how to walk. Thank you for showing us that trusting in God and not striving for, not striving to have the last word, not striving to have one's our own pound of flesh metered out to us, but that being humble, being per- perseverant, being faithful. God notices that. You showed us that. You demonstrated to us that God sees our affliction and he will reward us for faithfulness. Help us to be faithful. Help us to resist our flesh. Help us to fight our sin. Amen.